I got to do something pretty fun yesterday for me, a pretty big milestone. My parents got to celebrate 50 years of marriage yesterday. We had a good celebration for them. And uh, I, I was, as I was going to that, that celebration for them, I just looked online and just, you know, U.S. Census Bureau, like in the U.S., like what, what percent of marriages actually make it to 50? And it's 6% of all marriages make it to 50. You know, it could be some lose their spouse early, and, but oftentimes by divorce and 6%. And I just thought, man, what a, what a miracle that uh, I got to see my parents make it there. Just a few years ago, we got to celebrate my wife's parents. How many years ago was that, Virginia? That was a number of years ago. Uh, they're fit, so six years ago. That would be six years ago. My, my in-laws celebrated 50 years. So I'm just like, just thinking about the fact that my kids get to see two sets of grandparents make it 50, 50 plus years of marriage. And I just thought, man, what a, what a gift. And my parents were sharing, you know, kind of the, the secret. How, how could they stay married for 50 years? Because like all the rest of them, I mean, I, as their son, I, I get to see, you know, behind the veil. I, I know my mom and dad, they're wonderful people, but they are far from perfect. How do, how do they do it? And, you know, the one thing is they were sharing with the family, you, you realize this being married, you just, you have to be willing to say, it's not about me in this marriage. I'm, I'm for the other person and the other person is for me. And unless you live that way, you won't make it. One of the biggest danger points of any kind of relationship is when you start trying to get from that other person what you think you need for yourself, because they can never live up to that. This, this ability to say, I give up the pursuit of myself and to live for somebody else, and when I do that, I actually receive so much more in return. So there's this paradox that I think they're, they're teaching me in their 50-plus years of marriage, and is that there are some things in life that the harder you pursue them, the more they slip through your fingers. And when you just stop trying to pursue the very thing that you want, oftentimes you begin to get the very thing that you were seeking. You go, okay, what does that look like? More than just marriage. I think one of the clearest ways for you to see it is this something called sleep. Have you ever tried hard to fall asleep? If you have ever said, okay, come on, come on, go to sleep, Jason, go to sleep, Jason, you will never fall asleep. The harder you pursue sleep, the more sleep evaporates. Some of you right now, this morning, are exhausted because last night you were trying to get yourself to fall asleep and it didn't work. There are certain things in life that the more you pursue them, the more you, you watch them slip through your fingers. The more you grip them, the more they crumble in your hand. Well, one of the biggest ones of those, it's kind of the chief place that we get to, is this whole concept of happiness. Happiness is one of those things that the more you pursue it, the less you experience it. It slips through your fingers as you pursue it, which is interesting because our whole country is founded on the pursuit of happiness. And we, we want to be happy. All of us long to be happy. But the weird thing about happiness is the more you pursue it, either through a marriage, through a, an accomplishment, through getting possession, possession of something, the more you pursue happiness, the, the less you actually have it. There's this syndrome called the grass is always greener on the other side. It, it erodes our happiness. The, the moment you get something, you'll be happy for an instant but then all of a sudden, on the other side, you're no longer happy because it can only satisfy you for a small moment. And you actually end up less happy on the other side after that flash of happiness. It's a little bit like a, a bolt of lightning. If you've ever been in this dark and you're outside and your eyes are kind of adjusting, there's a really bright flash and you can see everything clearly for just a second. And then when that light disappears, now you're blind all over again. 
it's darker after the light. Well, that's the same way it is with happiness. It is, it, you ha- you're happy for a moment, and if you pursue that, you feel more unhappy after that little jolt of happiness. Yet we keep pursuing these things, thinking they're going to satisfy us, and they never do. Let me tell you what that is, that syndrome, the grass is always greener on the other side syndrome is. It's this little slave driver inside of you called the selfish man or the selfish woman. And that little person inside of you is your greatest enemy. I I just, I find people very self-deceived. We oftentimes think the enemy is outside of us when actually the enemy is inside of us. I've seen so many people say, well, my spouse, they're the problem. And if they would respect me more, if they would treat me better, if they would X, Y, Z, if they could just get some healing and God would change them, they don't even realize the whole reason their relationship is suffering is because they're trying to get everything from that person that they can't possibly deliver. It's them. It's not the other person. I've seen so many people go, well, it's that political party out there. You know, they're the danger to our country. If they get the presidency, if they get the house, if they get the Supreme Court, well, then our country is going to hell in a handbasket. They're the enemy. Listen, they're not the enemy. The enemy's inside here. We think the devil is the enemy. I mean, doesn't the Bible call him the enemy? And he is an enemy, but he's not the enemy. You see, the reason the devil even has power is because he can work on the enemy that lives inside of us. He can channel with this person who's seeking self, and he knows we'll self-destruct as long as we're pursuing our own happiness. So he just feeds these little lies saying, pursue your own happiness. Go after what makes you happy. And he just laughs the whole way because he knows we're killing ourselves. So here's the most beautiful thing God can do. He comes in to crucify the enemy inside you. In fact, the whole story of Christmas isn't the story of a cute little baby perpetually asleep in a manger forever and ever. It's the story of God in the flesh who came for one purpose, to crucify that person inside you so you can finally be free. I just don't know if that's what you look at when you hear the Christmas story. I want to go back to the Gospel of Luke. I want you to go to chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke. And I want you to see, you're going to learn in this the secret sauce to really experiencing the fullness of life that God has for you. But it's, it's a paradox. It's a conundrum. You have to believe it by faith. And you get it right here in the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, we read this same passage last week. We read it all the time, but it's very familiar. So I'm going to want to make sure that I zero in on a connection point. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You are so familiar with that particular passage of Scripture that you can almost hear Linus right now on the Charlie Brown Christmas special, like reading this with his blanket thrown to the side. And you're so familiar with it that you, you miss this incredible moment of what the angel spoke. He said, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that angel is now bringing together two things that we struggle immensely with bringing together. Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. And here's what he's saying. Until Jesus is Lord, he cannot actually be your Savior. And the reason that's so is because the one he's saving you from is your self-centered rule inside your heart. He must must rule to save you from self-rule. 
He cannot be your Savior until he's your Lord. It's, it's, it all comes down to understanding what the word Lord means. I, I want to I nerd out a little bit here on some Greek. I want to tell you that that word that says Christ the Lord, that word Lord is in Greek kurios. It's, it comes from a, a root word, kuros, which means supremacy. So when it says the kurios, it's saying the supreme one, the boss, el jefe, the one calling the shots, the master. You see, when, when he's the supreme one, we all serve his agenda. He doesn't serve our agenda. There's, there's a flip in that. So when it says that that little child that's laying in that feeding trough right there, that he's the savior, Christ, the kurios, See, that little child is the supreme one that the whole universe obeys. So let me tell you what that means. It means you don't get to look at that little baby asleep and go, isn't he cute? You go, isn't he king? And you bow down before him because you know who he is. The reason why that has to happen is because his one job as king is to say, get off your throne. Let me take that position because I know what I'm doing and you don't. And the common problem of every single man and woman and boy and girl is we think we know what we're doing with our own lives. In fact, I want you to jump over. We're going to spend our whole time in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to finish out this sermon parked on just a few verses right here. This is where the Apostle Paul tells us how the Lord, Savior, and Lord have to come together in one because of what he's coming to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. Listen to what it says he's saving us from. You get right to the heart of the gospel in verse 14 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And in that one verse, verse 15, you get the root problem of every single one of us. He died so that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Ding, 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 ding. That's our problem. Every single one of us is hardwired to live for ourselves. And when we try to live for ourselves, pursue our own happiness, we erode any possibility we have of actually experiencing the blessing and the happiness of God. It's, it is hardwired in children, and you never have to teach it to them. How many of you in here have been around a child? Raise your hand if you've ever been around a child. Okay, how many of you have ever seen a child be selfish? Raise your hand right there. All right, how many of you are parents in the room? Raise your hand. How many of you had to teach your children to be selfish? Yeah, yeah, put the hand down. You didn't have to teach them. You don't have to teach your children to be selfish. I know you've been in that moment before when you walk up to your child, your precious, beautiful, amazing child, and he say, child, go ahead and put that, that toy down. It's time to go clean your room. And they say, I don't want to clean my room. And he said, I know, but it needs to be clean. Starting to get some funk in there. I'll go help you out. Come on. Let's put down the toy. Let's go clean your room. And they say, I don't want to clean my room. And they fall to the ground. They start kicking their legs and flailing like you're chopping off one of their limbs. And they're screaming to high heaven because they just don't want to clean their room. Now, let me ask you a question. In that moment, what is that child doing? What that child is not doing is reasoning with you, saying, listen, I took a personal productivity class in my work, and I know that there's a better use of my time right now, so I would rather do these three things first, and then I'll get to cleaning my room, mom. That's not what they're doing. They're not reasoning with you. That child is the king or queen of their little world, 
and they don't want to clean their room, and ain't nobody else going to come in and try to be the king and queen in their life. It's a, it's a, a fight for who's really king, who's really queen, and they don't want you usurping their throne. That's what a child is doing. They are the center of their universe. They decide, and they don't want you telling them to give up their toy to go clean their room. I, I desperately wanted to show a video, but my wife would not let me share this video, so uh, I'm just going to have to tell you about it. This was about six years ago. Our daughter, Jovi, had just gotten home from China a few months before, and she's sitting in a high chair, and Virginia is trying to feed her a carrot. I'm not talking like four or five big old I'm talking about one little baby carrot just to get her to eat that carrot. And she was, she was just screaming her little head off in that high chair. She's two years old. She didn't even speak English yet. She didn't talk, but she can scream. And Virginia says, okay, baby, will you eat this carrot? She goes, no, 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 no. And then Virginia says, do you, do you want that pie? And immediately she goes, uh-huh. She didn't even speak English yet. She goes, uh-huh. And then Virginia says, okay, take the carrot. No, no, and starts slapping Virginia's hand, and she is screaming her little head off. It is hilarious to watch her do this. And the moment she stops and says, do you want pie? Uh-huh. Just, I mean, like break right out of it, back and forth. But she refused to eat that little carrot. Now, let me ask you a question. Why was my beautiful little baby girl, Jovi, screaming her little head off? It was not because she read a book about a Mediterranean diet and she knew that this carrot wouldn't fit because it's too high on the glucose level and it's going to you know, get her numbers off and so she needs to stay away from carrot. It wasn't, it wasn't because of that. It was because she wanted pie. She didn't want no stinking carrot and she's the queen of her world and she didn't want some other queen trying to come in and tell her what to do. By the way, if you know my daughter Jovi, she's still the queen and she knows it. She will walk around telling you. Every child thinks they're the king and queen, and anybody who tries to come in and tell them what to do, they will throw a fit. They don't want to have it. Why? Because every single one of us is hardwired to do that. And let me tell you the bad news. You never grow out of it. You only learn how to cope with it. Every single adult has the exact same wiring inside of them. We just learn to be smart enough not to throw a temper tantrum right in front of people. We do it later behind their back. But we're selfish. We don't want any boss telling us what we're supposed to do. We don't want a pastor telling us, any spouse telling us what we're supposed to do, any friend telling us what we're supposed to do. Because we are king and queen. And we want to sit there and call the shots in our own life. I was reading this book right here, Oh Come Let Us Adore Him. I know many of you bought a copy of it. It's, it's been brutal in a couple of places. But Paul David Tripp, he has this one little excerpt in here that just ate my lunch. I, I wanted to slap him when I was done reading it. And I, wanna, I want him to slap you this morning. This one actually goes all the way back to December 11th. But I, wanna, I want you to listen to how he frames this particular issue. If, if you have the book, make a note on page 55, go back and reread it. But it's a, he says this. He says, let's get even closer to home. Why do you get angry in traffic or irritated when someone disagrees with you or envious when someone gets something that you would love to have? Here's why. It's because it's not just your children that battle for kingdom authority. You do too. You want to drive on unpopulated roads because few things are more important to you than your own schedule. You want people to agree with you because you want a kingdom filled with people who always recognize the brilliance of your thinking. That was a... <laughs> Why do you struggle with envy? We struggle with it because our greatest allegiance is to ourselves and our happiness. Then he says his one last one, which was a jugular. There simply is no denying it. 
Life this side of eternity is one big and unending war of kingdoms. That's what's at place right now. There's a war of kingdoms. Who gets to be king and queen? Who sits on the throne, me or God? And he's saying there there is no in-between those two. And so God says, I have come to dethrone you. I have come to show you that the enemy is not outside of you. The enemy is inside of you. So this is the problem that we have. We love the idea of Jesus as Savior, but we struggle with the idea of Jesus as Lord because we don't know what he's saving us from. We think we can have Jesus as Savior. We pray a prayer when we when we're a kid, and now this is our fire insurance, so I don't go to hell anymore. Praise Jesus. Now I'm going to go live my life, and I know I get to go to heaven because I prayed my magical prayer when I was a kid. We think he's saving us from hell, but we don't realize that the only reason we're destined to hell is because we live for ourselves because we think we're in in control of our own life. God is not just saving us from that place called hell, which I believe to be a real place that people go to. That's just the byproduct of it. God is not just saving us from our circumstances. We want that. Oh, God, fix my circumstances, make things better. We don't realize that what he's actually trying to do is use our circumstances to mold us and break us down so we'll actually bow down before him. We think, God, save us from those people out there that are hurting me. God's not trying to save us from those people. He's sending us as light to those people. They're our mission field. Who he's trying to save us from is that person inside of us screaming to the universe that belongs to me. He's trying to save us from ourselves because that person inside of us is our greatest enemy. And that's why the story of Christmas is a story of destruction and decimation. The one has come and he's savior, yes, but he's also kurios, the supreme one, the master. And until he's master, he hasn't really saved you from your real problem. That's why Paul David Tripp calls grace violent grace. I'd never heard of that term before. I read the devotional, but it struck me. It's a weird way to think about grace. Not many of us think about grace as being violent. When we hear the word grace, we think, well, well, we name our kids grace because we want them to be gracious. We love that idea of unmerited grace, the favor that God shows that when we deserve punishment, yet instead he would give us his favor and his grace and his blessing. We love grace. But there's, there's a hard side of grace, that the greatest grace God could give you and me is to take that person inside of us and crucify that person, and to say, you don't get to rule your life, because when you rule your life, you die. That's violent grace. That's crucifixion grace. That's painful death grace, and yet it is still grace. God is trying to save you from your worst enemy, and that's why he says that I want To die so that those who live may no longer live for themselves. But that's just the first part. He doesn't just crucify that selfish person inside you. He resurrects you into something new, into a new kingdom. That's what verse 15 was talking about. I want you to see both sides. Go back to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. It says, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. He says, I, I did this, I died, so that those of you who live might no longer live for yourself. That's the crucifixion of that selfish person inside you. But there's a resurrection into a new kingdom so that you would live for the person who died for you. It's an invitation to obey his rule and his kingdom instead of your rule and your kingdom. It's a switch of allegiance. But here's the best news you will ever hear. 
As you pursue your own happiness and your own kingdom and your own will and you die, you let go of that. That person is crucified. You say, okay, God, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live for your glory and your kingdom. God does something spectacular. He gives you everything you were longing for in the first place. One of the most famous words of Jesus is Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. All those things that you long for, the blessing, the joy, the peace of God, I know you want those, but don't seek those things because when you seek them, they slip right through your hands. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness, and guess what I'll do for you? I'll give you all those things in abundance. You see, God says, you'll never outgive me, but make it your life goal to try. Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Why? Because God gives you even more. I have no doubt about it. If we had time, I would set a microphone up here on this stage, and I would just start inviting you to come testify. But my fear is we'd be here till midnight if I said, okay, those of you who've experienced the joy of serving others, experienced the joy of generosity, the experience the joy of a mission trip, I want you to come up here and testify. I want you to share how much more you got out of your generosity and your service than what you gave. I know in this room we could be up here for days testifying to all that God has done. Because you want to come up here and you want to say, man, there was that time when God called me to give to that person who was adopting that child. And so we gave it. It was a pretty big amount of money, but we gave it to them. And now we see that child in that home and we know we get to be a part of it. And our heart just leaves with joy because we got to be a part of it. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I know I could bring you up here and you're going to say, man, I went on that mission trip down to South America to serve those kids over there. And I was going to bless them. And when I walked away, I, I realized they blessed me so much more. You can't serve somebody else and not receive more blessing from it because Jesus himself wants to bless you. When you seek his kingdom and his righteousness, he takes care of everything else. See, God's not doing this to punish you. God wants to bless you. But when you're in control, you're dangerous. When he's in control, it's beautiful. So he's saying, give me control because I want to show you I can bless you. So I'm not telling you this because I read about it in, in a book. I'm telling you this because I've seen it in my own life. I can testify to it. I remember the first moment I realized in my own heart there was a war of, of kingdoms. I was actually a freshman at school. I, I was a freshman at Baylor, and, and God was calling me to give up a dream of mine. I've shared some of the story with you before, but, but I think it's, it's apropos as I discovered the clash of kingdoms in my own heart. When, when I was the summer right before going off to college is when I came to have faith in Jesus Christ. I was reading the Gospels, and I realized who Jesus was, and I wanted to be just like him. And I said, okay, I give my life to him. Forgive me my sins. I give you control. And I went off to college on fire for King Jesus. Uh, any Bible study I could get into, I was getting into. Any church, any ministry, I wanted to have all of it. There was just one area I didn't want God touching. It was my career. It was my dream. You see, when I was six years old, I found out my name Jason meant healer, and I knew all right, I'm supposed to be a medical doctor because they're the ones who heal. Now, when you're six, like 85% of all six-year-olds want to be a medical doctor. It's not that unusual. Uh, but I, I have this, this uh, weird tenacity where the Lord just didn't let it go. I, I, all the way through school, I was convinced this was my life calling, destined upon me because of my name. But my motivation began to change. You know, it started with this cool idea of being a healer, but as I got older, I started to see doctors, and I thought, ooh, they all drive nice cars and live in big houses. And I thought, mm, you, I, could, I could make a lot of money being a doctor. And I just saw the way people respected them. Like when they walked in a room, I mean, they, they, were, they were highly respected people. I started thinking, well, my parents 
would be so proud of me if I became a doctor. I mean, wow, I'd just stand up above everybody else. And so I started to get self-centered in my reasoning to where it was really about the kingdom of Jason. Like, I I wanted to do this because I knew it'd be great for me. So now I'm a freshman at Baylor, and I'm just learning how to do my quiet time, and I'm I'm over there praying and reading the scriptures, and the Lord comes. It was not an audible voice, but it was very clear, where God says, there's a place in your life you're not given to me. I want you to give up your dream of going into medicine, and I want you to go into ministry. I want you to be a pastor. Now, here's what I want you to hear. That is the worst thing you could have told me because of my perception of pastors. I'm just going to go ahead and be honest with you. I didn't have high regard for pastors at that moment. I'd met a lot of weird ones before. And I thought, I don't want to be in that camp. All of them I saw, they, they were poor. They were kind of weird. And, and maybe there was a day in our country where they respected pastors, but that ship had sailed. And they, they, they no longer were the leaders in the community. They were kind of looked at out of the side glance going, who's this person? Like, you got you to act different every time that lame pastor walks up over there. And I, I just didn't want to be in that category. And so I told the Lord, no, no. God, you, you can have, I, I'll... I'll give to you when I'm rich. I'll, I'll go to church. I'll be on fire for Jesus. I'll read my Bible. But no, God. Remember, we had a deal. God, when I was six. Remember that? Jesus, come on. Get back on my side. Get on my train. I'm going into medicine. And God would not let up for a month of just praying and praying and praying, wanting God to take away that, that call. And I remember specifically, after about a month, there was one moment when I was praying and I said, God, it's been my dream to be a doctor. I've always wanted this. I can provide for my family. I can be respected in the community. I can be a good Christian in the medical field. I, 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 me, my. And God just said, listen to all those times. Listen to where your focus is, Jason. It's you. You got a choice to make, Jason. He made it really clear. Again, it wasn't an audible voice. Just thoughts that are coming as I'm praying. Right now, Jason, you're pursuing the kingdom of Jason. And you can't pursue that kingdom and pursue the kingdom of God. Ministry is you pursuing the kingdom of God. Which one are you going to choose? And I remember I had that moment when I finally rose the white flag and I said, okay, God, I know I'm signing up for misery and poverty and pain and disdain and brokenness, but if this is the cross I'm supposed to bear, I'll do it. And I said yes to ministry, thinking my life was over, about to experience purgatory for however many years the Lord makes me go through it, and then maybe, just maybe, I'll survive. If I could have seen then what I see now, I would have screamed at that little Jason saying, get off your tail and go. It'll be the best thing you could ever do. You wouldn't be able to imagine the blessing and the joy God is about to give you. Step into it because he has blessing you can't even experience yet. You you can't even conceive of yet. I I want you to know, there there is nothing else in the world I would rather do than what God has called me to do. I, I want you to picture this just for a moment. I get paid to pray and to study the Bible. Is there a better job than that to get paid to pray and to study? Like you actually get happy when you hear that I'm praying and studying my Bible. If you catch me at my desk reading my Bible, you're happy about it. Now, those of you who are doctors and lawyers and school teachers, like that's probably not going to go that way for you. I get to do as my life calling the work of God. And whenever I have a moment, and and it's just such a beautiful thing, I know it is all God, but when I have a moment when somebody comes up and says to me, Jason, I I just want to share with you, my marriage was in shambles, my life was in shambles, and I know it was God, but when you spoke that word, the Spirit of God spoke to me, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ, and my life has changed forevermore. When I hear that, 
Holy cow, to think that I got to be a tool in the hands of Almighty God to bring restoration and change to somebody else. There's nothing I would rather do. When I have the honor of going to a city meeting and somebody finds out that I'm the pastor of this church and they go, oh, you're the pastor of Field, that big old church over there. And I get the honor of, no, I didn't, I didn't build this church. I, I just slipped in on the lowest possible position on the pastoral totem pole. They took a chance on me because I was bilingual. That was about the only reason I became one of the pastors here. And the, the fact that I get to lead this incredible church, I get to represent you to the community. There's no greater honor that could be given to me. I get to do this as my life calling. I can't imagine in a million years settling for being a doctor. Now, I know there's some doctors in here right now. I love you if you're a doctor. I'm not telling you you chose poorly. If you're a school teacher, if you, if you sell insurance, whatever you may do, look at I'm not saying all of you need to be pastors, but I am saying all of you need to get off your throne and let the Lord be in control of your life. Because when he's in control, he will take you places to experience blessings like you couldn't even dream of. I would never go back and tell my younger self, choose, choose medicine, it'll be better for you. I would choose ministry a thousand out of a thousand times because I get to see the blessing of Almighty God. But here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear God has the same in store for you. I, I don't have some kind of like bat line to God where he listens to me, especially because I stand on a stage or because I went to seminary. Or, no, 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 no. I, I have the same spirit of God in me that every single one of you who believes in Jesus Christ has. You have the same capacity to experience the blessing and the joy of obeying a God who knows what he's doing. He's just saying, you got to get off your throne and let me, get, let me get in charge. That's what he's offering you today. So here's my question for you, and, and I, don't want you to, I don't want you to play soft on this one. I want you to really answer this question. Who is sitting on the throne of your life? Who's reigning supreme? Because you have this little spoiled child inside you that is saying, I'm king, I'm queen. And that little child has to be crucified day in and day out. Who's calling the shots? And let, me tell you, let me tell you what I'm not asking. I'm not asking, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? That's great, but even the demons believe that and they shudder. It's not enough. I'm not even asking, like, do you go to church? Because guess what? Even the demons go to church. They just go to mess things up. I'm not asking, do you have warm, fuzzy feelings about Jesus? Or, or do you give money to the church? Or do you try to be a good person? I'm asking, who rules in your heart and mind? Because it's only when Christ is on the throne that you experience the fullness of life he offers you. Jesus Christ came for one purpose, to dethrone you so he could be Lord. Because when he's Lord, then you experience salvation and life. And that life is called abundant life. Who's sitting on the throne right now in your life? The whole message of the gospel is simple. The message of the gospel is that you and I chose to be on the throne of our lives. We chose to do things our way. God says, here's the way I want you to live. And we say, that's all right, God, I got this. I can sit on this throne. It's called rebellion, transgression. We have sinned against God, and we've made ourselves enemies of God because of our own selfish choices. But God knew that we would not be able to overcome it, so he sent his son to take on flesh, to live the life of humble submission to his father, to show us what it was supposed to look like, to obey the father. Then he went to the cross and paid the penalty for the wrath you and I had earned and deserved, he went down into a tomb. Three days later, he came up. 
And he said, listen, I've earned this. I give it to you. Jesus Christ experienced a violent death so you and I could experience violent grace. But we have to choose to receive it. There has to come a moment when you say, I give up, Jesus. I've been in charge. I've screwed up my life. It's me. It's not you. It's not them. It's me. Oh, God, forgive me. Take over. But here's the best news you're going to hear. When you make that decision, something supernatural and infinite happens inside you. The old you dies, and you become a brand new creation. I want to finish with one last quick verse, still in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read verse 17 for you. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, by in Christ it means has submitted to the lordship of Christ, invited him to come in to take control. If anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creation. It means it doesn't matter what sin you dragged in here, how many, how many mistakes you've made, how much baggage you have. If you choose to let Christ reign, you are a brand new creation. The old has passed away. There's a baptistry that we have on stage every single week for one purpose. It's an opportunity for you to publicly declare your faith that the old has passed away. When you go under the water, it's a picture of your death, of a passing away. The old you, dead and gone. When you come out of that water, it's a picture of, behold, the new has come. It is you saying, I choose to reset everything now upon Christ and let Christ become the king of my life. That is not a decision that happens to you because you come to church or because you read the Christmas story or you know about the Bible. You haven't always been a Christian. Some of you think, I grew up in a Christian home. I've always been a Christian. No, you haven't. Because Jesus has not always been master of your life. You see, he's got to be your master, your Lord, for him to be your savior. And that means there must come a moment when you draw a line in the sand and you say, I'm no longer in control. I give you control. I walk over. That's when you become a person who is a believer in Jesus. That's when you're saved because he's Lord. And I don't want to walk, I don't want any of you to walk out of here not knowing that. And so I'm going to invite you to come, do a bold, take a bold step, do a bold action to come forward and say, all right, I got to admit, I have not let Jesus have full control of my life and I'm ready for a reset. I'm ready to be brand new. I'm ready for the old to pass away and the new to come. You come, you let us know. We'll make sure that you understand the gospel and then we'll give you a t-shirt that says Jesus in my place, the whole message of the gospel. And then you'll have an opportunity to change into shorts and to get baptized before you leave this building today as a sign and testament that the new has come. Not because of some water, but because of your faith in Jesus Christ, because you were not ashamed to declare your faith in Christ. That's how he takes rule. Some of you are going to need to take that step of faith today. I'm about to invite you, but there are two more things I need to say. I know there are many of you in this room, you've already taken that step. Many of you this year. But let me say what, what can happen. There are parts of our life, little compartments, where we can start to take back control. Other things can begin to rule in our life. Some of you, it's a substance that becomes a master, starts to rule in your life. Some of you, it's a relationship, another person could be with, with a, a spouse or somebody that you're in love with or a family member or a child and they're starting to rule in your life. Could be a career that you're giving too much to and it's starting to rule in your life. And maybe you're going to need to come down, not talk to anybody, just bow down on these steps and say, I confess to you, I've let this rule. But Jesus, I want you to rule. I give it back to you. 
Maybe that's what you need to do. Or maybe there's one last step you need to take. I know every Sunday in this room with all these hundreds of people, there are some of you and you're going through some incredibly hard circumstances and moments where you're feeling beat up by your circumstances. But there's a grave danger, especially for those of you who grew up in church. Your danger is that you've been taught that godliness means you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you got Jesus inside of you, and so you work hard to make it happen. Listen, don't burden other people with your problems. You got yourself into this problem, you got to get yourself out of this problem. Let me tell you what's wrong with that philosophy. That's you trying to be king. That's you trying to be queen. Let me tell you what you need to do. You need to say, I, I, can't, I can't handle this. I don't rule in my life. I'm not able to handle this. I can't be king or queen. Jesus, you're king and I need you. We're going to have prayer partners all over the front. And their job is to receive you and for the two of you together to lay that need at the feet of the one who really is king and let him handle it. Prayer is a sign of self-humbling. I am not in control. I can't handle this. Jesus, I need you. And if you're willing to humble yourself and take your need before the Lord, he will show you who he is and what he can do. So I'm going to invite you all to stand up right now. I'm going to invite the prayer team to come spread around the front. Son, I know there are other things you need to be doing today, but there's nothing more important than you responding to the Lord right now. If you need to come, just bow down and say, look, there's an area in my life I need to give back to you. God, forgive me for letting that rule. You do it. If there's prayer that you need because there's an area, a, a situation that is overwhelming you and you're ready to say, I can't handle it, Jesus, you're king, I give it to you, you come. Or if you're saying, I need to become a new creation today. I need the old to pass away. I need to be made new. That can happen today. You come. However the Spirit is calling you to respond, it's time. You move.